And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday, second best day of the week. And of course, that also means Michael Leibowitz is joining us today uh, to talk a little bit about the big story this afternoon will be Jerome Powell speaking um, this week. And again, we've had just a slew of Fed speakers out all week long talking, you know, basically giving speeches about various things. But everybody kind of glued to what's the next step here for the Fed. Is it higher for longer? Is it more rate hikes? You know, have, have increases in interest rates done enough at this point? That's all the big questions that, uh, you know, markets are looking for answers for. And today, of course, is Jerome Powell himself. And so we'll get into what he may or may not say today uh, here in just a few minutes. But um, outside of that, though, yesterday the markets did sell off. And again, um, we picked up a little bit of you know, kind of turbulence yesterday. And, and again, when the markets were selling off earlier in the day, um, came down and retested that 20-day moving average. Again, as we've been talking about here lately, we're just kind of stuck here. Uh, not really a whole lot of news yesterday. Uh, we're still going through earnings season. Last night, Netflix reports earn, reported earnings um, much better than expected. Stock's gonna be up about 13% this morning. Um, on that news. And again, you know, we saw Abbott Labs as an example report earnings yesterday, better than expected. Stock was up about 3% yesterday. So uh, again, you know, we're seeing companies coming out, beating estimates, you know, Ford guidance hadn't been terrible at this point. So, you know, and, and again, as in Netflix's case, you know, looking for a, a, a continued strength in their subscriber services, looking to actually raise prices. And again, you know, we talk about you know, right now, you know, people kind of struggling to make ends meet, but you still have companies with that pricing power able to raise prices. People want to pay for the service and they're willing to, to pay more for it. So, you know, where's the limit, right? Where's the limit to where Netflix raises prices and people go, yeah, no, I'm not going to pay it. You know, there, there is a limit. I just don't know where it is. And Netflix hasn't found it yet, apparently. And so they're going to be raising prices. That is, is all good news for Netflix. So again, uh, they continue to grow their business. Stocks are going to get rewarded for that today. But again, estimates had come down a lot, as we talked about before. You know, we're in that millennial earnings season period where, you know, companies are beating estimates. But you have to remember, these estimates were lowered a lot uh, before we actually got into the reporting. But nonetheless, this is going to help give the market some support. And so markets are going to open uh, kind of flattish this morning. We'll see. Markets are really kind of stuck between what's happening right now with, you know, earnings, of course, being a little bit better than expected, but struggling with these higher rates right now. So, uh, again, you know, higher rates, that does impact future earnings growth, does impact, you know, valuations, et cetera. Um, there, is, there is a measure of that as interest rates are ticking up here uh, that is certainly, you know, kind of providing some stress to the market. So, again, we just kind of really remain stuck here uh, at the moment. Outside of that, uh, yesterday also, again, um, you know, President Biden in Israel, uh, of course, uh, didn't really do a lot to relieve tensions, uh, that, uh, uh, what's happening there. And of course, that is also providing some additional weight on the markets right now, kind of uncertainty about, you know, what potentially does this spread into a wider war, right? And that's, uh, that's also certainly giving some concerns to investors about the potential of, you know, what the ramifications of that could be 
on markets as well. So, you know, but again, as we kind of look at, you know, the different areas of the markets, and again, you know, one of the, the, the byproducts of concerns about war in the Middle East is oil prices. Um, despite the fact that, you know, we've got this conflict going on in Israel, oil prices did move up here, but not dramatically so. You know, there was a lot of talk about as soon as this happened that we'd see oil prices, you know, here, here comes $150 in oil. And that really hasn't happened yet. Yes, we've seen oil prices tick up here a bit. Um, we are close to triggering a little short-term buy signal oil prices, which could suggest a bit higher price uh, in oil. But again, you know, oil prices really fairly contained within this kind of trading range they've been in here now for a while. So again, despite what's happening in the Middle East and, and Israel in particular right now, it's, it really hasn't translated into this big you know, spike in oil prices that everybody expected. Uh, that was a, kind of that immediate kind of knee-jerk reaction. Gold prices also, um, you know, they've been recovering here, but uh, gold prices had a very, very big decline um, previously this year, and uh, we are have been getting a little bit of a bump here in gold prices. Uh, we went from about $1,800 an ounce back to about $1,900, so oil, gold prices up about $100 on concerns about what's happening in the Middle East. But again, you have to remember this is coming off a fairly big decline uh, in gold prices that we had earlier this year. So uh, again, you know, when we kind of like take a look at the broader picture, yes, there's certainly concerns about conflict in the Middle East, but it really hasn't translated a lot yet to some of the areas of the market that people really kind of expected it would. Um, but here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, as I said yesterday, the markets did trade off to the 20-day moving average. We just kind of really remain trapped uh, at this moment, kind of within this range. And we, we continue to kind of build this uh, compression and price that we talked about on Monday. So markets are going to have to break out of this range at some point uh, in one direction or the other. And, we'll, and, you know, again, a break to the downside. We've got support at the 200-day moving average. That's about 4,020 uh, 4, on the S&P index. A breakout to the upside, we're going to retest this kind of 4,500 level that we had back in June and July. So, uh, again, markets remain fairly compressed right now. Earnings are supporting markets on one side, concerns about interest rates and what's happening in the Middle East weighing on markets on the other side. So traders kind of trapped here a little bit um, in terms of, of, you know, kind of where we are at the moment. Um, once we get to the end of the month, and as, as we've talked about before, we'll get some additional support from buybacks that will start in November when that window opens back up again. But this week, uh, the rest of this week, next week in particular, uh, we're going to get a lot of the big mega cap names coming out, Apple, Microsoft, etc. So uh, that should help provide some, provided they say good things, <laughs> that should help provide some support to the markets. Uh, real short term, we were overbought, so we're kind of working off some of that overbought that we had picked up uh, from that rally that we had last week. So again, a little bit more work here. We're still on a buy signal right now um, at this point from a fairly low level. So again, there's not a lot of concern at the moment, but again, you'll kind of keep a watch on this 20-day moving average. If we do kind of break through that with some vigor uh, and confirm that break of that 20-day moving average, we are going to kind of look at support at the 200-day. So there's certainly risk to the downside here currently. So don't negate managing risk in the portfolio right now. Um, a break to the upside obviously uh, would be a much better story heading into year end. And, and again, we'll, we'll see what we have to, to do when we get there. But you know, right now, we just kind of remain stuck. And I, and I imagine this is going to be the case as kind of sloppy trading. 
uh, through the end of the month. Once we get to November, things should start to shape up here a little bit, both from just a technical basis as well as a seasonality basis as well. Um, November, December tend to be better months than the, than the month of October. We had written previously that October weakness was likely, and that's exactly what we've seen so far. Um, but once we get to November, that should shape up here a bit. Again, barring uh, something much more negative coming out of the Middle East or a dramatic spike in interest rates. There's a lot of things that could derail this market short term. And we're going to talk about some of that this morning uh, with Michael Leibowitz when we come back from the break. But that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, more with Michael Leibowitz. Also get by the website, his latest article on the website right now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, uh, Again, uh, markets kind of sold off here a little bit yesterday, and it was kind of a it's kind of a steady selling drip kind of all day yesterday, which was a little bit different than we've seen the last few days, where we've seen kind of late day buying coming in. Markets have been selling off, and then you get some buying coming in, and uh, particularly in the late day, which usually institutions uh, coming in to make those purchases. Uh, yesterday was a little bit different. Uh, just kind of saw a steady drip kind of all day long in the markets and uh, markets did finish lower this morning. Futures are, are kind of flattish. Dow's down about 30. Nasdaq's up mostly because of uh, Netflix. Um, so we'll see kind of how, how today kind of shapes out. But of course, uh, you know, the big story, of course, you know, has been interest rates. And that's, um, you know, we've had a very sharp jump in interest rates here just over the last few days. Really not news driven at all. There's nothing really driving um, the spike in interest rates. It's just a, a momentum move. And again, just as with the markets, you have the same type of momentum um, in the bond market as well. So you have a lot of people that are a lot of these CTAs, uh, these computerized trade, trading algorithms and hedge funds, et cetera, you know, shorting bonds. And so when you have that kind of pressure in the market and that momentum trade uh, going on, it can last um, and can, can push things further than you think. But again, as with all momentum trades, they eventually end. It's just a question of when do they end and what causes it to end. And and uh, what that reversal eventually looks like. But this is, in terms of a momentum trade, this is now the longest momentum trade since 1973. So um, it's, it's been a very long duration in this momentum over the last year or so in interest rates. And of course, that's what's been kind of weighing on markets, weighing on sentiment, et cetera, weighing on the economy. Not surprising. So, but the question becomes this rise in interest rates, um, you know, is, is kind of the, the, the interesting tale here because the Federal Reserve has been hiking interest rates in order to get 
interest rates to restrict monetary policy, right, to, to make things more expensive in the economy, to get the consumer to slow down, to lower the rate of inflation. Um, up to this point, really, interest rates on the like the 10-year Treasury example, you know, have been kind of hanging in there at, at their own level and then hadn't really been corresponding to the hikes in Fed rates. But all of a sudden, it's been, you know, kind of a catch-up with the 10-year yield versus the Fed funds rate. So all of a sudden, we've kind of had this, this, this jump in interest rates. And the question now becomes is now is the bond market doing the job of the Fed? And uh, this has been, you know, kind of the, the question that everybody's been watching these Fed speakers. Of course, today is Jerome Powell. Uh, he's giving an address this afternoon. And the question is, what is he going to say um, in regards to what's happening with interest rates and Fed policy as it relates to their next moves? Again, their meeting comes up October 31st, November the 1st is the next Fed meeting. And the question is whether or not they're going to hike rates, uh, reiterate higher for longer. That's that's going to be that's the all eyes of the market are now glued on this next Fed meeting. Michael, uh, welcome to the show this morning. What do you what do you think uh, Jerome Powell is going to say today? And what, what do you think about the, the current state of things as they are? So there have been uh, six to seven Fed speakers, and I have I probably haven't seen them all, but at least six to seven that have said that higher rates are doing a Fed's job for them, that and higher long-term rates. So the Fed controls short-term rates; they don't control long-term rates. But it's really long-term rates, five-year, five-year, ten-year, thirty-year rates that really control the economy. You know, mortgage rates, auto rates, when a company borrows to buy a factory investments, uh, the government's borrowing rate. Those are the rates that really drive the economy. And the Fed increases short-term rates to help push long-term rates higher and create uh, and slow down economic growth and hopefully take, uh, take the legs out of inflation. So what we've seen over the last week is clearly an orchestrated effort to tell the market that, that the long end of the bond curve is doing their job, that they don't have to raise rates because long-term rates are going higher. Uh, the question today is, will Powell reiterate that? And given that these six or seven speakers, and again, probably more, have literally said the same exact, the <laughs> phrasing is almost identical. Right. I suspect he's gonna say the same thing today. Um, and, you know, what will the effect be? I don't know, but but clearly we're at a point in the interest rate cycle where interest rates are driving the stock market at this point, mm -hmm. right? It's, if you watch the bond market and watch the stock market, stocks really struggle when interest rates shoot higher. And we've seen a couple instances of that, you know, a day, a day or two stocks can go higher with rates going lower, but it seems like they always keep catching up. Right. And the reason for that is that the value of all, we're in a leveraged society. So the value of all assets, be it stocks, houses, factories, cars, you name it, everything that produces income that helps the economy grow is a function of interest rates. And as interest rates rise, the value of those assets inherently decline. You know, in the financial markets, the decline is measured in the price change day to day. And sometimes that inherent value can take a while to show up in the market. But I think we're starting to see that. And, and we're starting to hit the point where 
we've talked about this crisis. Whenever the Fed raises rates, there's a crisis, a financial crisis, an economic crisis, a bank, a country, a county in, in one case, a, a sector of the market, something happens. And it really feels like we're getting close to that point. Bank of America just said they have a hundred and what was it, 125 billion mm-hmm. of of losses, unrealized losses on their books purely because of interest rates. That means every other bank has a massive amount of losses on their books, which also means that many investors, pension funds, endowment funds are sitting on similar losses, even countries. Mm-hmm. So in my opinion, Lance, it's a question of when does something break? And every day that rates keep doing what they're doing, especially over the last week, the odds of something breaking increase dramatically. This yeah. isn't a slow trickle anymore. Yeah. You're getting pretty pretty close to the Fed having to step in and having to protect someone and how they do it and who it is is kind of the big question at this point. Well, you know, we're going to have a couple of interesting data points to look at this week. You know, first of all, we have a ton of regional banks coming out uh, this week. You know, and this is this has been, you know, where the, you know, with interest rates lower than they are now, uh, sorry, with interest rates lower previously than they are now, we had a regional bank crisis back in March. And today you've got uh, you know, Truist Financials reporting, uh, KeyBank, um, you know, quite a few other, uh, Western Alliance, uh, which was one of the banks that was on the ropes back in March. Uh, Western Alliance was one of the, the banks that were uh, one of the bigger concerns about risk of default. And they're reporting earnings today, so it'll be very interesting to see. You know, you know, with interest rates higher, what is their what does their loan book look like at this point? What is you know, are they having stress here? Um, you know, or is everything fine? Did this bank term funding program that the Fed put together to bail out the regional banks is it is it doing its job right? Is everything okay? Uh, but you know, there there is an interesting, and you've written about this before. You know, back in 1987, uh, you had interest rates spiking up. And, you know, back then was this whole thing called portfolio insurance. And, you know, the the financial markets had thought they had figured out how to protect portfolios in kind of all environments. And, of course, that unwound very quickly when interest rates spiked up. Um, And, of course, you had the crash in 1987. And and there is kind of an interesting correlation if you look. And I'm not I'm not big on analogs. You know, there's a lot of analogs running right now. You know, that this market looks like that market because of, you know, the price action. But there is an interesting analog between what markets are doing right now versus interest rates that led up to the, cra- the, the crash in 1987. I'm not saying we're going to have another crash in 1987, but to your point is that whenever you've had spikes in rates, uh, particularly in an increasingly leveraged economy, uh, you typically have some type of financial event, whether it was uh, you know 1987 portfolio insurance, long-term capital management in 1998, uh, the Russian debt default, uh, Asian contagion, the dot com crisis. I mean, you you can just kind of pick them out. Um, whenever you've had big spikes in rates, the the negative consequence was never really a great thing. Right, <clears throat> right. And here's that we talked about this. I think it was last week. Long term capital was a hedge fund making what some would say were smart bets. They weren't really stupid bets, but they were leveraged. All hedge funds are leveraged. Most investors, most institutional investors, are leveraged. That means they're borrowing money from someone to invest in the markets. And when investments go against them, it means that that hedge fund is potentially out of business. But more importantly, it means that all the banks that lent them the money are on the ropes or on the hook for those potential losses as well. So when you're in an environment like this where hedge funds that 
are betting the wrong way on any number of assets, when when things go sour for them, it's not just the hedge fund that you've probably never heard of that goes under. It's the counterparties. It's the banks. And the banks are leveraged to each other as well. So, you know, it's, it's a series of dominoes, and it doesn't take much of a big domino to set off a bunch of dominoes, especially in a skittish market. Right. And, you know, we saw this with the regional bank crisis. You know, it was it was one bank, two banks. All of a sudden there were six, seven, eight banks growing in size. PNC, Charles Schwab, Toronto Dominion. So, you know, these dominoes can go pretty quickly. And we just it's just that first domino, which is probably going to be a domino no one's ever heard of. <laughs> right. Well, and it'll be something, too. Again, you know, we have a tremendous amount of shorting right now going against treasuries, which requires leverage. Um, and, you know, so you have, you know, the, the actual crisis could show up. And again, I'm just, you know, making assumptions. But you could actually have the crisis show up in these hedge funds that are shorting bonds. So, you know, it just depends on where it shows up and when. And to your point, you never know where it's going to be. It's just a function of, of when uh, more than anything else. And then realizing that that's going to be the moment that kind of everything changes from what we think is going to be the case to what is actually going to be the case. So come back from the break. Pick up with Michael Lee. It's lots more to get into this morning. Uh, stick around. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so you know mike and i pick on the fed a lot because they you know say a lot of things and a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes, but, you know, you would think with, you know, an organization with 400 PhDs that they could figure basic math out. Um, the, I'm going I'm to digress here just a quick second because there was an article that popped up this morning on the Wall Street Journal. This is from the Wall Street Journal central banking uh, section of the Wall Street Journal um, talking about student loan repayments. And again, this is one of those issues that's, uh, you know, one of the concerns of the markets right now because student loan payments have restarted. Um, and so this is the article uh, from the Wall Street Journal. I just want to read to you two sections very quickly, and then we're, gonna, we're all going to do some basic math here for just a moment. But then I want to talk about bond convexity and uh, yields. We had a lot of questions from yesterday's show with Danny. We were talking about uh, the potential return on bonds and, you know, kind of basic bond math. And we had a lot of questions come in after the show yesterday asking more about the bond math. So so Mike and I will get into that a little bit this morning. But let me read to you these two sections. And, and Mike, this is Mike, Michael uh, Leibowitz right now. He's, he's with me. He's completely cold on this topic. He doesn't know anything that I'm about to tell you. But Mike, I want you to play. I want you to play math professor with me for a moment. You're good at math. And I just want you Sometimes. to kind of follow along, okay? So um, millions of student borrowers are likely to curtail their consumer spending 
by only about $56 a month as they restart payments on student loans. This is according to the Federal Research, Federal Reserve Bank of New York data. Across 28 million federal student loan borrowers, this amounts to about $1.6 billion less in consumer expenditures every month. Okay, so just, just a little nip, right? So you go through the whole article, and down at the bottom of the article, they say this. Now, just keep in mind, 28 million, that's the number of borrowers. Mike, you with me? 28 million borrowers, and they're only going to reduce spending by $56 a month when they restart their student loan payments. So 28 million, that's the number of people. Down here at the bottom of the article, it says, the U.S. government paused federal student loan payments in the early weeks of COVID-19 and pandemic in 2020. The 43-month breather in payments, so we need to know the number 43, 43 months, gave borrowers $260 billion in wave payments throughout the pandemic that could be used on other consumption or saved in bank accounts. Okay, so we have three numbers that are very critical here. 28 million borrowers, 43 months, $260 billion. So if we take $260 billion, divide that by 43 months, and then divide that by the 28 million in, in borrowers, that means they were saving $215 a month, if we do the math. So how is it now that going forward, they're only going to spend $56 a month on student loan repayments when their payment, the average payment was $215 they were saving previously? So this is Fed math. So, so now we've had, we've had girl math. We've had guy math. We now have Fed math. <laughs> and this is why you've got to be careful uh, reading headlines and, and make sure that you do the basic math. Uh, Mike, any comments before we get into bond math? No, the math doesn't make sense, but bond math does. <laughs> bond math does, so let's go over there. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So we have girl math, we have guy math, we have Fed math, and now we'll have bond math. Uh, so yesterday, Danny and I spent a few minutes talking about, um, you know, kind of basic bond math, and we were going through and using an example of a 30-year treasury um, as, you know, kind of as, as the example and talking about if, if interest rates go up, you know, 300 basis points from here, the decline would be about 29%. But if interest rates fall 300 basis points uh, from yesterday, then you're looking at a 72% uh, gain uh, in that bond. And, and so we had a lot of questions about that um, in relating to both bond, basic kind of bond math. How does it, how does that work? And also a little bit about convexity. So I thought we could just talk a little bit about that this morning because, again, we just had a lot of emails yesterday going back and forth. Um, you didn't see all of them. <laughs> there was a lot. Um, uh, but going back and forth, talking about, you know, you know how, this, how this works. Why is it that there's such a big potential gain in bonds uh, when yields fall? So I just thought I'd let you kind of go through. Let, let's just talk about yield and price first, and we'll talk a little bit about, about convexity. So let me actually talk about duration because it, it, yield and price are a function of duration. How much price moves for change in yield is all about duration and convexity is, is a function of duration. So duration just is essentially a measure of your average payment. So let's think about this. Let's take a 10-year bond and we have two bonds. One bond is a zero coupon bond. So in theory, you buy that bond at 80 cents on a dollar 
and it matures at at a dollar in 10 years. In that case, the price will go from 80, 80 cents to a dollar and you're going to make 20 cents over the 10 years. That's your yield. The um, duration on that bond is 10. Your average payment is going to come in 10 years. Now we take a 10 year bond that has a 5% coupon. So every year you're going to be making on that $1 investment a nickel. Every year there's a nickel. So you have a stream of nickels and then at the end you get back your $10. The duration on that bond is somewhat less than 10 because your average payments is not 10 years. You have all those coupon payments. So for a 10 year bond today, it's about eight. So your duration is eight. So you now have a duration number. With that duration number, you can approximate if yields go up or down, what's my price gain? And the math is simple. For every 1% yield change, you just multiply it by the duration. So if your duration is eight, if yields go up 1%, you're gonna lose 8%. If yields fall by 1%, you're gonna make 8% on top of the coupon. Mm -hmm. Both are on top of the coupon. Right. So convex, so the way I just described it, duration is linear. So, so if rates fall 5%, you're going to make five times eight. If they rise 5%, you're going to lose five times eight. But the, the, durate, the duration does change slightly. So it's more it's hard to describe with words, but it's more of like a An little arc. bit of a U shape. Yeah. Uh, convex a little bit. So as yields fall, you're actually, the, the duration will increase slightly. So what's gonna happen is that, that when we estimate these changes, they're actually better if stock, if uh, yields fall decently, the approximation we made earlier will actually be slightly better. And when yields, when yields go up, the approximation we made when you start talking about two or three percent higher will actually be not as bad as we thought they would be. Right. The the key I think for for most people that are not trading bonds that are not in the weeds with bonds that are not professionals is just look at the duration. That's mm -hmm. a very simple number. You can get it on you know Fidelity. If you buy a bond, Fidelity will tell you that duration. Charles Schwab will tell you the duration. There's probably a hundred other sources to find that duration, um, and even as an approximate, you can sort of assume. And again, it depends on the coupon, so don't. I don't want you to take this too literally, but you can assume it's roughly seventy per, to eighty percent of the maturity. So if it's a, a you know a twenty-year maturity, say the duration is about sixteen years, yep. fifteen and a half, something like that. Um, and it works for a one-year bond, a twenty-year bond, a a six and a half year bond, you name it. So focus on the duration. If you think rates are going to go up 1%, it's that times the duration, but you have to factor in that you're getting a coupon. And this is where bonds start getting a little interesting given current levels. If we take a 10 year bond that says has an eight year duration, if rates go up 1%, we're going to lose 8%, but we're going to make 5%. So we're going to lose 3%. If bonds go down 1% in yield, we're gonna make 8% because of the price rising and we're gonna make 5%. So you're looking at a risk reward of 13% on the upside and, and minus 3% on the downside. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, when you start thinking about yields and how much higher they can go and duration and you put all this together, the risk reward ratios start looking better and better. And we were talking about stocks earlier. Another reason stocks may be struggling is because you can lock in 5% for a risk-free treasury and 6 to 7% for a very good, high-quality corporate bond. At what point do you say, you know what? I'll take that high quality corporate bond. Why am I investing in stocks that tend to average over longer periods, seven to eight percent returns anyway? Well, and not only that, it, you know, right now, uh, for the first time in 20 years, the yield on a 10 year treasury is higher than the earnings yield on stocks. Now, I'm not a big right. fan of earnings yield. I think it's I think it's, you know, math hooky because you don't get an earnings yield on stocks. But if you want to use the inverse of the valuation, right, which is the earnings divided by price, you can get the earnings yield. And, you know, we just haven't had a period really since 2000 where the 10-year Treasury rate was higher than the earnings yield on stock. So, again, just kind of this other you know side of the bond math that says, you know, you're almost better off buying bonds here than you are owning stocks. Yeah, I mean, look, if we offered, you know, equity investors 15%, I guarantee you 99% would take the 15% and run. If we offer them 0%, which is the world we came from, they're all going to chase equities. Yeah. So we're on that spectrum, on that continuum. And the closer we get to 15, the more investors you're getting that are going to sell stocks and just buy bonds and ride it out in a risk-free asset until stocks are cheaper and bond yields are lower. Well, you say that, but when we come back from the break, we'll talk about the last time that you couldn't sell an 8% coupon. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to this morning. So just talking a little bit about, you know, yields and, you know, talking about right now you can buy a, a treasury bond with a higher yield than you can get on stocks. And it's interesting because, you know, Mike made the point, um, and it's a good point, right, that, you know, when yields are zero, everybody wants to buy stocks. Uh, that was the there is no alternative conversation that we had for a, basically a decade <laughs> uh, during the, you know, Fed QE programs, et cetera. Yields were zero. So there was no alternative. Uh, couldn't keep money in a money market account because you weren't making anything. So you had to buy stocks, right? So that is the there is no alternative thesis uh, to markets when yields are zero and stocks give you a higher earnings yield. And uh, like Mike said correctly, that, you know, with a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent yield on bonds, all of a sudden those are becoming much more attractive relative to owning stocks. Why take the risk in stock markets when I can just buy a yield and sit on it and get paid? Right. And then get my money back. Importantly, you know, with when a bond matures, you get all your money back. It doesn't matter what happens to the price. Um, but 
at the end of the day, you get all your money back plus your interest payment. And, you know, that's certainly a much better alternative. But it's interesting, Mike, because this this is where psychology, investor psychology becomes important, because back in 2000, um, as a good example, um, we could buy CDs at 8%. And, and the reason I bring that up right now is because mortgage rates yesterday on the 30-year mortgage hit 8%, first time since 2000 that we've had mortgage rates at 8%. Um, but back then, you could buy a CD at 8%, and you could not sell investors CDs at 8%. Why? Because at that moment, um, Jim Cramer was talking about the 10 stocks for the next millennium, um, which were all dot-com stocks. Um, and, you know, everything was going through, you know, kind of, you know, barn burner through the roof. You know, Enron was skyrocketing, et cetera. And for a moment, you know, why would I want a, a lousy CD paying 8% when stocks are going through the roof? And, you know, it's almost kind of that same situation we see that today is, you know, you have this very negative sentiment on an asset class that both matures at face value um, and is paying you a decent yield to sit in a risk-free asset over the course of the next, you know, you know, five to 10 years, you know, however long you want to own it. Um, versus valuations on on stocks, it's kind of just an interesting conundrum that we're you know kind of back to that analysis where I don't want I oh, bonds are terrible I don't want to own them I only want to own stocks because they're going up. Right, R right, you're right, Lance. It's both equity valuations and bond yields, and 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 you have to put both of them together. Bond yields may go to eight percent, but if let's just say the stock market gets cut in half today. Mm -hmm equity expected equity returns will probably be much better than 8%. Right. So you know, while yes, I can lock in 8%, my expected return on a stock if it gets cut in half today, which isn't going to happen, is much better. So so you're always looking at the return the expected return differential and for the last 10 years that expected return differential was the expected equity return even if it was four or five percent because valuations were high versus zero to one percent well that whole math has changed now and the problem i think that stocks are starting to that it's stock investors are starting to sense is that valuations are still high so their expected returns over longer periods are below average so again, if average is seven to eight percent and expected returns in stocks are four to five percent at current valuations, bonds make a lot of sense here, at least shifting from stocks to bonds, not not wholesale selling stocks and buying bonds, mm -hmm. but shifting your your balance from stocks to bonds. And every day that yields go higher and stocks don't fall commensurately, the case for bonds grows. Um, so, you know, I, you know, whether individual investors are really attuned to this, I think I think some are, some aren't. But institutional investors think about pension funds and endowment funds that have set targets rate target rates they have to meet. If your target rate is six percent and you're a uh, pension fund manager or a big institutional fund manager, your goal is to meet six percent and you can buy a a solid double a corporate bond for 10 years at 6.05 percent you've basically done your job for the next 10 years assuming that company doesn't go out of business right so you know the case for chasing risk assets goes down as yields go up and this is again it doesn't happen overnight this is the lag effect within the markets 
And every day that goes on, there's another investor that has that aha moment. It's like, screw it. I'll take the five or 6%. I'm good. Right. And in time that wears on the equity market until equities come down in price and become cheaper. And then, you know, if we could get to a point a year from now where equities are cheaper and bond yields are much lower and all of a sudden equities make a lot more sense than bonds and you get the switch back from those bonds back into stocks. Which is interesting when you say that because, you know, we've been, you know, in this exact situation, you know, previously and again, this is we were we we talked a lot about investor psychology and the mistakes that investors make a lot on Tuesday of this week on the show. Um, because you know, when so right now bonds are are very undervalued relative to where they should be, and nobody wants to own bonds. Uh, there's right. a million reasons why interest rates are going to go higher from here. I love the latest the latest um, you know notice, which is you know people running around saying, "Oh, it's the deficits. We're going to have this continued rise in deficits, which are going to create a more inflationary, uh, a, a, sorry, a higher interest rate environment." That's not true. We've been running deficits since 1980, and as that trend of deficits has been growing since 1980, the trend of yields has been lower, not higher. So that argument carries no no weight whatsoever. However, um, you know, in 2008, stocks are down 50%. By the way, bonds are down uh, 50% from their, their peak. Worst drawdown in history. Nobody wants to own bonds. In 2008, nobody wanted to own stocks either. And then that was the best time to buy things. So Again, you know, investor psychology is always very interesting to watch. And as, you know, any great investor will tell you, you want to buy assets when nobody else wants them. You know, you, know, you, you buy panic, you sell greed. And this is one of those instances, just like we saw in 2008, where you've got an asset class that absolutely nobody wants, which certainly to me looks like a really good opportunity to start buying something. Right. And you made an excellent point about the deficits. The government has a negative economic multiplier. So when they spend money, it does help the economy at first, but over the long run, it actually hurts the economy. So as these deficits grow, your economic growth in the future is declining. The economic growth rate is declining because so much of their spending is non-productive. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't think about it. We're, we're sending money to, to Ukraine. They're buying bombs. They're dropping it on you know, whatever they're doing with them. And yes, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon is getting some money up front and they're paying employees and that goes through the economy. That's great for about three months or six months. But now the government owes that money and it becomes a weight on the economy. So, you know, the cases these the people are making for these deficits being behind higher interest rates are actually false. A spe you know, if you're looking at a three or six month bond or one year bond, that's a different story. But when you're looking at 10 year, five year, seven, thir 10, 30, 20 year bonds, all all the longer term bonds, it's actually they're wrong. It, it's they're they're actually slowing down future growth. And over the course of 10 years, much of that growth, you know, eight of those 10 years will probably see the slower growth mm -hmm. from the higher deficits. And, you know, Lance, the other misconception is that the Treasury, Janet Yellen, they're just issuing like crazy. They have no control anymore. And look, government spending is out of control. It's been out of control. And when you when you look at at what they're issuing and what the deficits are compared to the past, they're not abnormal. The the economy has grown five trillion dollars since COVID. That's a lot. 
debt has grown, but it's grown in line with that. And in fact, after the, the initial spike in debt due to COVID, our debt to GDP has come down slightly. So, you know, one can make the case that, yeah, they're spending more, but as a percentage of the economy, they're actually spending slightly less. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to poke holes in these narratives. You have to really, like your student loan example, you have to really examine what they're really saying and does it make sense and use some math. And when you start doing that, you realize that a lot of these narratives of why rates are going up are not right. The reason rates are going up is, like you said, momentum. Traders sense momentum. Yields are going high. Everyone's hopping on a momentum trade, mm -hmm. just like they hopped on the NVIDIA trade, just like they hopped on AMC when that was going up. Bond markets are markets like any other markets, and investors will chase them in one direction or the other. And, and again, when, when that reverses, that that covering of, you know, forces a big reversion in the other direction as well. And, and I think it's interesting right now because there was a really great chart. I, um, I, I wish I could share it with you right now, but I've got my video feed uh, tied up with Michael's face at the moment. Um, but on Twitter this morning, if you go to my Twitter feed, at Lance Roberts, uh, you can see this, this chart, but it's the net purchases of U.S. Treasuries. One of the big fallacies running around right now is like, nobody wants to buy our bonds. That's why interest rates are going up. It's actually not true. Um, it, this uh, chart, it breaks down... Uh, uh, purchases, you know, who's buying our, our treasuries. Um, the only seller of treasuries is the Federal Reserve, right? Um, the U.S. financial sector has been buying bonds um, a lot. Uh, households and nonprofits, they're buying bonds. Uh, other domestic investors, they're buying bonds. The rest of the world, right, they're buying our bonds. They've got to store reserve currency. Um, you know, yes, our, our total purchases are down a little bit from last year, but the only seller is the Fed. And so on a net basis, if you took out the Fed, the the buying of bonds is about normal for what they've been over the last several years. So, all right, Mike, that wraps up the show for the day. Um, we'll come, of course, you'll find all this stuff on our website, of course, at, at realinvestmentadvice.com. Check out our Twitter feeds at Michael Leibowitz, at Lance Roberts. Uh, Mike and I both post stuff there every day. So if you, if you have a Twitter, or I'm sorry, X, just go back to calling it Twitter, will you? Um, <laughs> you can follow us there as well. We make comments every day, keep you up to date on the, on the data. It's all there for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday.